On this episode of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, we have Laura McWilliams. She's an SLP, board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, and has a huge passion for change management, safety, quality, informatics, team development, and workplace culture. She's a leader, mentor, supervisor, manager, and consultant. And (laughs) she's still not sure what she wants to be when she grows up. She's a mom to three kids under the age of five, wife to a wonderful human and wife to a wonderful human and musician and has a deep appreciation for innovation, elevating others and finding courage in our daily practice. And I just love everything that Laura puts out online. Uh, You can find her on Instagram. She's managing SLP. Uh, I've gosh, we've been, we've talked online for years and years and, and now she's posting some really great stuff on LinkedIn too, that I'm just loving, but uh, she's all about workplace culture and how we can really elevate our field as SLPs. And she, I, I would say she's almost like the Adam Grant of SLP. <laughs> so, uh, that, that's really what I, what I coined her as, but she uh, also included some amazing references, some videos, some articles and things in the show notes too. So if you guys really like this conversation with Laura, please be sure to check out the show notes as I just love this conversation dearly. So hope you all enjoy it. to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders and founder of the MetaSLP Collective and MetaSLP Education. This podcast is dedicated to delivering the latest evidence-based practice to medical SLPs everywhere, while also recognizing that medical SLPs everywhere are doing the best with what they've got. Whether you are a new clinician seeking tangible tools for therapy or a seasoned vet stuck in a rut, my goal is simple, to help you advance your practice without feeling overwhelmed or underappreciated. This means that together we'll build confidence, broaden your knowledge, and reignite your passion for our field. So if you're listening, I encourage you to swallow your pride and be open to new ideas because at the end of the day, you and your patients deserve that kind of support. With that, let's dive in. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. All right. Hello, Laura. Hi, Teresa. How are you? Good. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm so excited to to have you on. I'm excited to be here. Yeah. So I've just connected with Laura over the years, gosh, on Instagram and just, I I love everything you're posting on LinkedIn these days. And I know we talked about doing a podcast episode forever ago. So I'm so glad that we finally get the opportunity to do this. So thank you so much for being here. Happy to be here. Thank you for having me on. Yeah. So tell the people who you are. So I'm Laura McWilliams. I live in Asheville, North Carolina. I am a speech pathologist who went to the University of South Carolina, and then pursued a clinical fellowship in the VA. I moved to Seattle. Um, I did that to really chase that good clinical experience in all different aspects of VA care in the Seattle VA. And I thought at that point I wanted to specialize in head and neck cancer. I moved back to the East Coast, to North Carolina, and uh, supported an outpatient head and neck clinic outpatient neuro clinic and then found my way back into the acute care setting. And um, I am now on a pretty specific leadership journey. And I realized the more that I specialize, the more that I don't want to specialize and the more that I'm finding joy in other avenues related to speech therapy. So mom of three, wife of a musician and uh, 
really loving the speech pathology community. Good. Awesome, Laura. Thank you so much for sharing. I know I'm, I couldn't really, you know, I still don't know what I want to do when I grow up, right? And so I'm working on my PhD now, and one of the concentrations is healthcare leadership. And and at first I was like, oh, I don't like, meh, like, I, I don't know. I, it didn't appeal to me at first. And and one of my, you know, advisors, as I was talking to her, just, you know, what I want to do in the field and what I really aspire to, you know, what I really aspire to do. And she's like, why are you not doing healthcare leadership courses? And I was like, well, I don't know. I don't really want to get involved in administration. And she's like, no, 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 no. It's really, it's almost like a mindset. It's just a it's a different way of thinking. And so I've taken three healthcare leadership classes so far, and they've probably been my most favorite. And I know we'll touch on things today just about change management and how, how, how do you, you know, overturn an entire system when things need to be flipped on its head? So anyways, that's, that's my piece. So I'll let you, yeah, where should we start today? So I, I guess one of the big things that you just talked about was the idea of, of speech therapists kind of getting in this in this career growth path and um, narrowing their lens. And then whenever they, they get an opportunity to learn more of just how do we encourage ourselves to really push into other, other aspects of either healthcare or education or higher ed. I think one thing that our field really needs are those voices that you, you just explained telling us, Hey, have you taken a look at this other large body of professionalism known as healthcare leadership. And I actually just had a mentoring session with a new grad, a new fellow. And she said, so what do I, what, what should I do with my career? What should I focus on? And she's looking for clinical courses, evidence-based um, speech pathology practices. And I'm telling her, take a public speaking course, you know, join Toastmasters, learn how to use an Excel spreadsheet. I think that's where we go wrong in our field and especially soon after our fellowship of of not encouraging people to seek skills, hard skills and soft skills that are outside of what we consider our scope and our realm because they're only going to compound and impact us as a professional later on. And the more that I could look back and tell myself as a professional, I wish I would have never told myself or believed myself that I wasn't good at math because now I do business math just about every day. Right. And, you know. it, it's so funny that you say that. I was actually at a at a business conference last week and, you know, it was pretty, I don't know, pretty high level business owners. And I felt way out of my league there, but it was, it was a good stretch for me to be there. But this woman comes on stage and she's like, I'm going to ask you one question. Does everybody on your team know how to do a fully independent, fully functional Google Doc and Google Sheet? And people were like, no. And she's like, that is business 101. If n- if none of your employees know how to do that, they all need to know how to do that because you cannot run a successful business without them knowing how to use these basic tools. And like the whole point of it was just all these quote unquote basic tools that we don't think we need to use in our profession that really can just help us make things a lot easier. And so it, I, I just really I chuckled when you said that because it's so true. Yeah. And I think also recognizing the tools for therapists, no matter what business you're in, and and also recognizing that speech pathology as a practice is affiliated to a business, no matter how you look at it, whether it's an education institution, whether it's a healthcare company, whether it's a skilled nursing facility, a mobile endoscopy company, we are attached to business because of how healthcare is set up in our country, country, how education is set up. And when you're looking at how to grow and how to leverage resources around you within your company, having a basic business op- business understanding is essential 
to being able to not only support your patients, support the people around you, grow you, grow your team. So if I could recommend anything to new graduates, post fellows, is to just lean on your business colleagues. And um, I went to my undergrad. I was like the only health profession um, out, out of my immediate friend group. A lot of them did business. And the more that I grow, grow up, the more I'm like, I'm, I'm jumping into their business world and trying to just learn so much from them when I realized that was essentially their learning during my infancy of my own education. So that's all circular. Yeah. It, it, you know, it's so interesting. You're saying you do business math every day. Now it's one of the things I had a conversation with a few people last week about figuring out their productivity and they're being challenged on their productivity. And one of the things was, okay, well, do you even know how your productivity is calculated? And they were like, no, it just shows up in the computer system every morning. And and, and it's like, well, but do you know what algorithm the computer system is using? And I just, it was like one of those things like, okay, well, we're going to start figuring this out. We're going to start writing it down longhand. You're going to start doing it. And then they were like, I wouldn't even know where to start with that. So I think yeah, it's, it's it's interesting that we don't think we need these these basic skills, but we really truly do. And I think one thing I I really enjoyed from your your podcast and just your different um, voices that you bring on is I think you know just think about education. Advocate. You have to advocate for education. Advocate for in services. Advocate for time. Advocate for great treatment sessions for your patient. The essential core of that is being able to, one, communicate effectively your need, two, make the math make sense into your book of business. So if therapists aren't partnering with their leadership to understand, learn, and and grow that aspect of it, we're never going to achieve our patient care goals. We're never going to embed this amazing education program into our, our day-to-day. And the more that I learn that aspect of it, the more that I'm able to fully implement implement what my team, I, I say they hustle my heels, ask me to do every day and grow professionals into fulfilling their their expertise, their destiny of how they want to specialize. So that's what I think is, I am positioned, I'm a, a leader over 18 speech pathologists, primarily in acute care. And so my team is larger compared to some, and I, I do sit in a place of privilege that I am only working with speech pathologists on a day-to-day. However, I am on a larger team of acute care therapists of OTs and PTs, and our books of business are all shared, and they are intercollaborative. So some of what you just said about knowing your Google Sheets, knowing your shareable platforms, we just went through a year transition of trying to learn SharePoint. Well, if you break down how do you support a team and their ability to knowledge share and then knowledge grow and collaborate. It's, it's giving them a tool like a shareable platform to collaborate. So that in itself is an essential business one-on-one aspect that can be nuanced to some rehab settings. Yeah. All right. So I guess <laughs> we talked about culture change, you know, and a few very specific initiatives that we are doing. Um, the difficult airway um, response team, and we recently have gotten into a trial center for um, a new tool called the Introducer. And I think when I was, I was thinking about what am I even going to say when I come on here, it, you know, while those things are amazing that we've gotten to the point of being able to implement and really be at the forefront of practice change at the institution that I work in, I'd like to talk about culture itself and how that made it possible because. None of that would be possible if we didn't first do the hard work of 
really assessing what is culture? What is your workplace culture? What does it mean for you? What does it mean for your leaders? And how to leverage that to get evidence-based practice. I think one theme across a lot of different clinicians that I've talked to at conferences, different feedback on um, different people's experiences on my own team in other at other work locations, and also on social media. You know, how do I get this therapist to to buy in to this type of practice or to stop doing this type of practice? Or how do I get this radiology radiologist to understand why I need to do this protocol for um, a comprehensive quality study? I think we can give all of the solutions that are like writing, writing the letters, having the scripts. But when you t- take a step back and look at it, it's actually what you're facing is a culture issue. And then alternatively, when you're in a bigger system and you meet patients that are treated at other hospitals, and you see a different practice, what often people say is, well, that's just a different culture. And the conversation kind of stopped. And then there's an odd silence. And it's like, well, what do you do about that? <laughs> like, where do you even start? And I, I always appreciate being a culture disruptor and, and being the person that comes in and is talking about a new practice or talking about something that is different. I also know that if you are that disruptor, you can also be on a, feel like you're on dysphagia island or on an island as you coined around a group of people, which is kind of an interesting scenario to be in. I also believe that when you are that disruptor, those are often the innovators that leave our field too soon. So leaders who happen to be in rehab management, who are thinking about pursuing healthcare administration, healthcare leadership, really understanding what workplace culture is and how to support evidence-based practice within your culture to achieve common goals of the business is truly one of the only ways that I feel as a profession, we will continue to retain good clinicians who really want a bright future of innovation for our field. Yeah. Yeah. So that was a little bit of a tangent there. (laughs) Oh, I I love that, Laura. I think I've been thinking so much about this lately. I've, I've got so many thoughts on my mind about this. And I think you know, one of the things I've been thinking about a lot lately is people say, you know, the field has to change. We have to make changes. We have to do better. We have to do to things differently. And well, who's going to do that? Right. Like it has to be us. And, and so many people will say, well, but it can't be me. Or, well, I've tried this and I didn't succeed. Or my hospital won't go along with this. And, and I think there has to be almost a culture shift around culture management. In, in our own perspectives, because yeah. we are the ones that have to make those changes. And, and I think of like, I really truly think of culture as almost like the foundation, right? Like you can't build these big, you can't make a lot of change. It's like building a house. Like you can't build a house on like really cruddy soil, you know, like you need a really sturdy foundation in order to implement all these different programs and have the communication and the effectiveness that's needed. So yeah. So, so talk to us about, you know, what, what can people do to start, you know, creating culture change? Solve the world's problems in two minutes, Laura. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So um, I kind of want to jump back to the business, right? So sometimes it's even easier to come in and say, if I was a business person and I walked into this group of people who were assigned to provide a certain type of care and they weren't consistent in doing it. They weren't discussing how to do it and they weren't positively producing 
an outcome that was efficient and effective for people. A business person would say, there's issues here. We've got to strip it down. We've got to talk about how do we, how do we even begin to get on the same page? Okay. So I think first is you need to come, you need to have a leader who is, has an understanding that workplace culture, feeling good about what we're doing and feeling safe in discussing what we're doing is essential to an effective workplace culture. So we, you know, there's, there's work situations where you're like, we, uh, they thicken at bedside, but I don't, right? You know, like that, that can't happen. We all have to say, we have to start talking about the practice of thickening at bedside, esophageal visualization, when to um, do an instrumental swallow study after extubation. We have to say, the expectation of working here is that we are going to discuss and we are going to collaborate and we are going to knowledge share and we're going to come up with a consensus of how we operate around here. And when there's new information, we review it. When there's something to discuss or an outlier case, we discuss. So one thing our team has implemented is every hospital has their overall mission statement. We're committed to the care and improvement of human life is my own. You know, we say it, you kind of drone on in meetings, but what does it mean, right? And then in your department, you might have these things that you say in your department. Well, we're a team that practices with evidence-based practice. We're a team that does X, Y, and Z. Okay, what does that look like? What does it look like to support somebody? What do you actually do whenever you do that thing? Showing up when, with evidence-based practice means you're using your Cognizant when it's appropriate. You're using the MBS INP protocol when at every possible moment that you can. You are using Dr. Curtis's recent literature and standardization of endoscopy practices. You're trying to use your green and blue and white dye as, as much as you can, right? You're committed to those things. So one thing every leader can do is bring it down from what is using evidence-based practice? What is supporting each other? What does feedback look like? Because you can talk about it all you want of what you want, but helping people understand this is how you show up to do it in the workplace is often the disconnect. Like we have values, but then the, what are the virtues? What does this actually look like? So we started there and my team, we have, we have six different virtues, values, values that transition into virtues. And then we have shared pillars of evidence-based practice that if you start on our team, we read foundational articles. The number one article that we all have to read as like, do not stop, go. This is where we begin in our practice. And you, you come back to this place is our first article that we chose was the uh, best practices in video fluoroscopy that was published in 2020. Because when I took this job, I recognized we had highly variable instrumental quality study practices. And so we just onboarded a clinical fellow and she started her second day of work with reading our best practices of video fluoroscopic quality study. And that's the bar, right? So yeah, now we have values and virtues set up, but, but what else? So another ecosystem that I have set up within my, my team is that we have various work groups that all work interconnectedly to review various aspects of our evidence-based practice and of our practice in acute care. So we have a radiology work group, we have an endoscopy work group, we have a documentation work group, an ear, nose, and throat work group, 
stroke, cognition, um, I'm forgetting we have 12. And whenever these work groups started, the idea was each individual member on this breakout team becomes the subject matter expert to bring new information to the table, update our competencies, update what we do, and then present the information to the team that they practice with every day. And what that creates is almost like a learning ecosystem and a self-assessing system of, we're going to talk about practice. Because if you have a culture where you haven't talked about practice, and then suddenly we're talking about practice, and then we talk about practice for every month for a year, guess what? Your culture suddenly talks about practice. And then you've shifted. So we are a year and a half in to these evidence-based practice work groups, safety and efficiency work groups. And um, at first it was, it was challenging because they were topics that people hadn't talked about in a very long time. And then as people got used to change and update and processes became more efficient, things started getting really awesome and Questions got answered, and our shareable network of information on SharePoint got more robust. And now, when there's a new thing uh, that happens, so in our case, the difficult airway response team was a, is a new endeavor that our team is, is tackling. We started, and there's three and four different clinicians who are actively implementing change on the ground and feeling very empowered to do so. So. I think back to how do you start to influence culture? It is first establishing norms. What do we what do we do around here, and how do we agree about what we do around here? Is really what you have to be discussing. Understanding that do people have defined roles? If they don't, do they need one? How can how can you be more intercollaborative and then interdisciplinary? Because if we can't get more right internally as a speech pathology group or as a group among a few facilities of speech pathologists, then we're not ready to collaborate with anybody outside of our group, right? Because we have to get ourselves right first. And I often think about the radiology relationship and why so many people uh, have that headbutt with that group. And, and I, I, I believe it's culture. I don't think it's individual speech pathologist, because I know that good work is happening on the end, but what typically influences it is the variability among clinicians and setting a new precedent between the clinicians that aren't as consistent in their practice. I think that, I mean, that was probably one of the most valuable nuggets we've ever had on this podcast, to be honest, because I think that's the question that so many people ask. Like, I want to impart change on my facility. I just don't know where to start or, you know, who am I to to stir all this up, you know, but I love this concept of these working groups for, for these different concepts. And let me ask you sort of how does it, how does it really look in that, you know, I, I know I've worked in some facilities where, you know, well, she doesn't scan down on the esophagus or well, she doesn't trial, you know, honey thick liquids, you know, instead of having these finger pointing conversations, how does the working group sort of get in, like, are these situations brought to the working group or, or how are these, how do the dynamics play out? So let's just focus on the radiology team um, because, you know, I started and I started in this role two and a half years ago and I'm like, okay, we need to get more standardized in radiology and we're going to do the digest. Whew, I was way, I was way high, way high. So I just I pull it back 
and say, first, we need to talk about what we do in a follow study. Yeah. What, what's their protocol? How do we feel about the esophagus? And our radiology team was three clinicians who I wouldn't say all were clinician champions. You know, they, they had very different feelings about what we should do in radiology. And when you look at work group science, that's actually the best group to put together is the most diverse because the outcome and the product of whatever comes from that group is more collaborative and representative of the whole because of the diversity, right? So um, they stripped down the literature. They found the best practice article. That's how it became one of our foundational articles. And that's where they started. They said, you know, we don't really have a shared language. We don't have shared terminology. We don't have a shared agreement in, in uh, should we have a protocol? And what that group did is they established recommendations. So they made recommendations to our larger team and said, I recommend we do X, Y, and Z. Mm-hmm. And each team has, our whole team has two weeks to give feedback on it. Two weeks to say, I agree, don't don't agree. I need more information on this. So it's making a, pro- a project collaborative to begin with, but then ex- expanding it to a a whole group decision. And then at the end, after that two-week period to give feedback, because that puts responsibility on the entire group to to be part of the solution, decision is made. And then you move forward with practice change. So after that two-week period, because our our radiology team recommended a protocol and we selected MBSIMP, our team is now on an endeavor to all be 100% updated, compliant with MBSIMP and be fully utilizing it within our radiology protocol and including the esophageal visualization. And I bet you what's coming next is the REST protocol. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I feel like, I'm, like it's, it's coming at me from so many angles lately. So I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I love it. I love it. So, so then taking that into different realms, right? So what do we do in endoscopy? And how do we then bring literature into what we're doing. What are you doing? What are you doing? And making sure what the the minimum practice of the team is at an elevated place. It's yeah. that good benchmark to start. Love that. Talk to me a little bit about like the time logistics. Cause I think that's a big thing is like, well, I would love to start this new program, but you know, it's like eating an elephant. It's going to take two years. Like how, how do, how often do these working groups me, is there like a deadline for, okay, once we come to the consensus on this, it's going to be implemented by this date or, yeah, because I know that's so many people always just want to, you know, get it done very quickly, but there's a methodical and systematical way to get that done. Yeah. And I think that a lot of it, so in change management, so put your evidence-based practice, speech pathology, how to aside a minute, a lot of this work is also helping with shaping the culture of your team itself. Uh, One of the lessons I've learned in my experience professionally and then in leadership, as just a clinician and then in leadership, is when you let a culture accidentally shape itself, it can be really toxic. So with this focus work as a leader, I'm communicating to my team, I have expectations that we're going to be updating this. And here is the time you are given to be updating this. So back to the book of business side, every week I'm looking at my team and saying, in order to be productive, in order to meet our business targets, 
we have to be X amount productive with X amount of tools and we have this much time to use. And then I decide what is the most important work group to be working on something right now. And I delegate that time. And that's where I am encouraging every clinician to learn the math, learn the metrics, learn how, when we meet our productivity, then what, what do we do with that extra time? If I'm overshooting it, they might change my target. So how can I help to use that good time if there is leftover time to to use, right? I mean, business is forecasting and every rehab manager should be forecasting how much labor they need to accomplish their goals. And a part of that is evidence-based practice to advance the care you're providing and make it more efficient for the patient in front of you. So I am responsible primarily to make sure whatever work group or few work groups are active, are getting the time they need to solve the problems that are at the forefront of the patient care in front of my clinicians every day. Yeah, love that. So during the height of the radiology work, um, I think we had that going, our endoscopy team and our stroke team. So there's probably one to two, probably three teams meeting every week. And there's three to four clinicians in each group. and also, I'm teaching them, you need to be efficient with your meeting. You need to be efficient with your your project. I'm teaching them project management and how to do a gap analysis, right? As therapists, we are taught, do an assessment, identify a goal, move a patient along in a treatment plan. Well, guess what? That's business. <laughs> and a lot of what you see in a gap analysis is exactly what you would see in a treatment plan for a patient. It's just your target and your goals and your milestones are bigger and related to quality care, safety practices, and the financial uh, commitment to your business. Yep. Oh, I love this so much, Laura. I, I think it's, we're all on a, a, a journey to further our practice, further our career. And I just really want to encourage everybody to make sure they're they're broadening and, and also working on a professional growth plan to have some sort of mentorship and feedback, whatever that looks like. I, I think that I try to capture those clinicians who are about to leave the field, who are really strong and really committed, but just haven't had leadership and, and just came up to so many barriers before they finally say, screw it, I'm going to go do real estate, right? And like, sure, we need real estate agents, but I also would love that speech therapist to change the world on my team. Um, Because one thing that, one virtue we have on my team is you protect the innovator. Uh, We've all been that clinician that's like, hey, I've got a new idea. And then you're met with, well, we've tried that sometimes, you know, and that doesn't feel good. But that new idea could be the next Susan Langmore, could be the next, Dr. Curtis, like I'm talking about Dr. Curtis, could be the, the next um, Dr. O'Rourke that goes on and, and, and becomes a doctor to be a specialized ENT, laryngologist, right? We have to remember that those new ideas are the solutions to our problems. And the generation we're welcoming into our field, which is gener- Gen Z, is going to be training the next generation that takes care of me, right? So yeah. <laughs> we need to make sure we are teaching these people well. And we are also encouraging them to fix it, to make it better. I, I also want to talk about making sure that when you 
do meet a roadblock, roadblock with your immediate management. Just know sometimes it's not you. It's just the constraints of the leader in front of you. And really working on your emotional intelligence to to understand them, understand their communication, how to manage up, and then also how to leverage. Because another part of healthcare that I think we uniquely fit into is patient safety and quality. We are quality care experts. We are patient safety advocates. We are excellent communicators when it comes to how to tie all the pieces together. And the more that I learn about the ecosystem of the hospital, the more I realize my problems typically don't aren't solved with my direct line of leadership in my hierarchy. It's from leveraging who's around me. And when you look at culture and culture study, which I'm I'm more than obsessed with, as you can tell, network leadership is, is just a historical aspect that's made any civilization successful with culture change. And that's a whole other historical tangent that I'll, I'll leave for another time. Because culture change often comes from studying societies of times past. Yeah, yeah. I, I love that you just brought up that point because it was a conversation I had with somebody else. They they just kept running up with resistance against their their director, their immediate director of rehab. And she was like, I just don't think she understands, you know, she's like, I, I, I love my director. She's phenomenal. She'd go to bat with us, you know, for us any day, but she's a PT. And I don't think she understands. It was like a trach team or something like that that she was trying to put together. And I said, well, how about partnering with maybe like a pulmonologist or somebody that speaks that language to be able to collaborate and then have, have a conversation together with the re, with the rehab director about maybe, you know, why it's so important to you. And she said that was just like, it opened up a whole new world. Like she just always thought that every idea had to go right through the rehab director. Whereas, and I'm, and I'm not, I don't want to tell anybody like, please bypass your, your <laughs> DOR, that's not what I'm saying by any means. But having these, these sort of partners in, in these liaisons in other fields can really help to drive the change forward. Yeah. Cause I think what you run into is not necessarily an inability. Yeah. It's just limited capacity understanding so we're not really at we're not the person that can answer our answer our question or problem anyway and that's one one quote i love you know with frustration it's really just telling you you're trying to solve a problem and you haven't figured out how yet so just remember that as a clinician and i i i feel like um i was looking at 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 some of my notes of what would i even what would i even bring to the table in this discussion and this really broad, ambiguous conversation. But I think we as a field often talk about catchphrases on collaboration and supporting each other and then just showing up and doing what we're saying we need to do. That's your culture. And any clinician who is on a team, you can actually do a test on your culture to to see what it's like. And that's hire a new person and ask them to live with you for a day. Because within a day, two days, they can tell you, is this a good place? Do they thicken at bedside? How do they feel about radiology? How do they feel about esophageal sleep? How do they feel about knowledge sharing? Do they respect each other? Do they like talking to each other? And I think that's where I have learned, and actually it's in organizational psychology literature, you test your culture by inviting somebody in and seeing what they see. And you should be seeking feedback from those people who who are new to you and may 
make sure that those new hires and those CS, you are absolutely hustling their heels for feedback because they're eventually going to get entrenched in your culture and then might not be able to give you good information. Yeah. Yeah. What's it like working for Laura McWilliams at my hospital? You know, I'm, I always try to try to figure that out because we have blind spots and we should be actively pursuing what are they and actively correcting them because those blind spots in our management will become blind spots in our ability to care for patients. Yep. Thank you. Thank you for saying that. So, yeah, I know we're, we're coming up on our time, but is there anything specific to, I don't know, where, what are you thinking? <laughs> that this was, this was phenomenal, Laura. I think, you know, there's so much here. I know we could talk for hours and hours and hours, but I think I really just wanted to give clinicians just like an actual, you know, tangible advice. And I think you really did that so well. I think, you know, one, one thing I would maybe say is, what if you're at one of these facilities that it's just been so hard to change the culture and you're almost like the younger clinician. Let's let's use a very stereotypical scenario. Say you're, you know, the 24-year-old CF and you have a, you know, 60-year-old SLP who's been doing the most antiquated practices and says that's how we've always done things here. You're just a CF. I, I've been here 30 years. This is how we do things. How how do you eat that elephant? How <laughs> do eat that elephant? So I, I would say how engaged is that contrast with your leadership? How much awareness is there? Um, and I'm not, I'm not, you know, going, going to sugar, sugarcoat it. If there is a leader in that type of setting who is not aware of, of what could be some toxic culture and, and then, then that's not necessarily your problem independently to be, to be solving, right? That actually is leadership and management. Uh, opportunity to be engaging this mismatch because if you are working for a risk averse company, they will be interested in why there is that mismatch. Why aren't, are these two clinicians so different in their practice? And I know, you know, I, I have clinicians on my team who've shared, you know, I have put in for orders for a mobile endoscopy or a fees and then the clinician behind me comes back and, and cancels it. Right. If you don't have a safe place to begin discussing with that clinician or a leader to leverage that conversation and push into that, then you need to step back and question the business practices of that company in general. And that that's a very real conversation that has to start happening with management. And that's why I'm also encouraging all speech therapists to quit telling themselves that you are not appropriate for management jobs because it takes us in those positions to start changing that conversation. You can learn OTPT billing. You can learn different insurance reimbursement constraints or opportunities. You can learn all that. But exactly what you're describing, you can be the solution all along. So I hope that provided a little bit of guidance. That was awesome. Yes. Thank you so much. That was wonderful. I I think that my biggest challenge of even like coming on and, and, and talking on this podcast is, is, you know, it's really a vulnerable topic because I think it, it goes without saying that I have experienced not great cultures to be learning about culture, to how to make it better, to not repeat sins of the past. Right. And I think everybody should be assessing what is the health of my team? What is the space that we are discussing? Is it safe? Is it collaborative? Do we even have have any values to stand on? And do we know how to show up with our virtues? How do we act in the workplace as a collaborative team? 
So I, I really would just in, encourage every individual person who is finding themselves on speech pathology island surrounded by a group of people to start learning a little bit more about culture, change management, business practices, and start learning the language of safety, quali- safety and quality. Because if you provide quality care, literature supports it, the economics align with it. And we have more leverage in this business game than what we realize. Yeah. So. Thank you. Thank you. I think that's what so, you know, so many people will say, well, like my business or our, our facility only cares about profits. They don't care about patient care. And it's like, well, if, if they understood that good patient care meant profits, you know, it's, it's a, it's, it's a whole culture change. I know. Yeah. And I think, so there is a good team activity. It's, it's, uh, it's kind of like a self-assessment of, um, Patrick Lencioni. You've talked about him. Um, he's the five disorders of a team. He does this self-assessment of where you lie in being humble, hungry, and smart. I think it's actually a really good assessment for each person to run through. And those qualities, no matter what team you're on, whether it's a sports team, whether it's a theater team, whether it's a speech pathology rehab team, you have to know what type of teammate you show up in in the day. Are you somebody who is too humble? or not humble enough? Are you hungry? And that doesn't necessarily mean motivated, but are you just, are you, are you ready and eager to do the work that's in front of you, no matter what is in front of you and smart meaning emotional intelligence. And if you don't have a framework for where you exist in the world with those three things, I recommend every clinician to start with themselves and get a better understanding of those three things. So they first know how to navigate on their team before they can figure out how to work within the culture of their team to change it. So I probably should have sent that link to you, but I know you're probably aware of it. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll add those in the show notes. So thank you, Laura. Yeah, I'm yeah. Of any, any Patrick Lindsay yeah. book, if anybody's just looking for some really just easy, easy to digest, you know, business leadership principle books, those I, I love yeah. the, like a lazy Saturday afternoon. They're just such quick reads. So yeah. And you keep saying, is there anything else? And I just, they could go on and on and on. Mary your self-assessment, your team's assessment with the quarters of a business. Because every quarter, every business looks at how they're doing. And I believe that four times a year is probably just enough for you to self-reflect and say, I've done well here. I need to improve here. And it keeps you on that rhythm of change with the business. And it also readies you for an unpredictable economy that we're all facing. You know, I think we all feel that in different aspects of our job, our home. And in order to protect this field moving forward, we need to just do more of the conversation related to the overall industry. Yeah. Awesome, Laura. This has been so, so, so wonderful. Yeah, I'm glad. I'm glad. <laughs> oh my gosh. Thank you. Thank you so much. This has been so valuable. I yeah, I'm I'm pretty speechless right now. Yeah, and I think like it's it's hard, you know, because whenever people see the team thriving, I'm like, what do you do? And well, I see you talking all the time. And then like, how does it, how's it working? I'm like, well, that's, that's it. That's, that's it right there. Don't be the manager that is upset with people because they have to take off because their kid has ear infections, right? Or support the collaborative environment, support the discussion, micromanage people. And you've already started on a leg up with it. So, so I am, and I think this is just more for you and feel free to, you know, we don't need to put this in there, but I am, you know, just, 
privately, I realized there is a market for, and not like there's a market, there's, there's a need for knowledge on this topic. Yeah. And I realized I've developed kind of a, a more specific and then robust approach to how to approach this for different leaders. And I am working with different professionals in and outside of healthcare to just support them with understanding what is culture, how can you leverage it, how do you need to push into it, and how how can we just become more self-aware as individuals in the workplace? Yeah. So it's been when you say, I don't know what I want to be when I grow up, I say that all the time. And But I know that the more that I do this work, the more right it feels and the more excited I get about the future of our field because you're actually supporting people and changing it. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I love that so much for you. I love that. I love that for the people that get to work with and I love that for our field too. So thank you, Laura. Thank you for leaning into this. I think it's, um, I don't know. There's just, there's so many people in our field that are capable of doing just so many wonderful things if they would really just lean into what feels right to them. So I just want to congratulate you for leaning into it. So, well, the funny part is, is it's like, you know, we have kids. And I have my daughter, my daughter is four and a half, four and a half almost five. And she's coming into the years that I'm, I'm seeing a lot of myself in her and language is delicate. And, um, I read something in a book that said the most confident a woman is, is at nine years old. And then all of my leadership learning tells me the more that you do, the more that you feel like the most confident you are as a kid. So I think of like my nine-year-old self and I'm like loving all my friends, supporting all the people, playing all the sports. I'm like, ah, the more I do this, the more I'm just tapping into my inner child of what feels really good, you know? Yeah. And that's the feeling we all should be pursuing. Yeah. Yeah. So funny to say that. (laughs) My four-year-old just loves saying like, hooray, like whenever we do something, she's like, hooray, mom, hooray. (laughs) So yeah, you're, you're so right there. So awesome. Scraping their views of the world. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, thank you so much, Laura. I appreciate you so, so much. And thank you for, thank you for coming on. And that's a wrap for this episode. As always, thank you so much for listening. And if you'd like to download the show notes from this episode, please visit swallowyourpridepodcast.com. There you can also sign up for our email list so that you'll never miss another episode. If you do like what you hear, then please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or share it on social media with your friends and colleagues, because that is what keeps these episodes coming. If you'd like to be a guest, share feedback, or request a topic to be discussed on the show, please email podcast at TeresaRichard.com. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll catch you next week.